This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. To keep you in suspense. I had to be everyday grind. Night transmissions. Night transmissions. Night transmissions. Hello, this is Gary Clinton. I want to welcome you to Night Transmissions, number one hundred and twenty. Let's kind of get straight to it. First up is an episode of Strange Wills, which was a program that was made for syndication in 1946 by Telways. It had an interesting twist on mysteries produced in the late 1940s. It was co-created by Telways and the star of the program, Warren Williams. Warren Williams at the time was a significant stage and film actor but who is little remembered now except for his portrayal of Perry Mason in four Warner Brothers films, produced between 1934 and 1936. This program has unusually high production values, and at its core is an ensemble cast of excellent actors, headed by the host and star, Warren William, co-starring Howard Colbert, and Carlton G. Young, Lorraine Tuttle may be the most familiar name to you, with occasional guest appearances by other familiar names, William Conrad, Peggy Weber, and William Wright. In general, just some of the best West Coast voice talent available at the time. The premise of the series is the investigation of one last will or testament or another. Warren Williams would provide the first-person accounting as either the attorney of record or the investigator of some extraordinary will. This particular show, Treasure to Starboard, is, I think, stretching it a little bit to get it into the format of this particular show. It's really pretty much a straight adventure story. The little MacGuffin they use is they have a small scene at the beginning where the captain of the Toledo, a ship that is sinking in 1703, is hurriedly writing out his last will and testament. That's only a few words. It very quickly jumps more than two centuries to give us a take on an adventure story uh, similar to The Lady and the Pirate, if you know that one. It's all about gold and topazes and pearls and, and just, you know, treasure. Oh yeah, there are some NNs. I mean, what 1940s adventure program would be complete without the inclusion of some NNs? Nasty Nazis to you neophytes. By the way, you might notice some clicks and popping in this particular recording. I, I don't think it's too bad. I went through it with the Audacity plug-in to remove clicks and, and did improve it quite a little bit. But this kind of thing is fairly common. I think it's an indication that the original recordings 
from which this MP3 file were made came from a old-fashioned acetate disc. So that's how programs were syndicated back then, to a large degree anyway, on acetate disc, which sometimes were a bit worse for the wear. This is not to say that by the time of this program's production, July the 13th of 1946, there weren't already programs being saved on tape. There were. But to my ear, this sounds like it must have been on an old-fashioned acetate recording, hence the scratchiness. Strange Wills. Stories of strange wills made by strange people. Starring the distinguished Hollywood actor, Warren William. And featuring Lorene Tuttle, Perry Ward, with Howard Culver and an all-star Hollywood cast. And the original music of Del Castillo. I devise and bequeath to my heirs the seven deadly sins. Hate, jealousy, anger, revenge, envy, greed, and lust. And here is our distinguished star of radio, screen, and stage, Warren William. Strange wills are stories of strange and unusual testaments, many of which, when read between the lines, bring to light stories of dramatic intensity that defy our imagination. Names, places, and time have all been changed so that no reflection can fall on any person or persons, living or dead. The masterpieces of fiction pale in comparison to the stark drama found in man's last official act on Earth, his last will and testament. And now to Warren William as John Francis O'Connell in Treasure to Starboard. This is a story of sunken treasure, of blood-red rubies, sparkling diamonds, and lustrous pearls. But these were but a part of this priceless treasure trove. There were golden statues of pagan gods encrusted with precious stones. There were amethysts, opals, and gold. 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 On the night of March 12th, in the year 1703, some 400 miles off the coast of the West Indies, the Spanish three-master Toledo was foundering in the grip of a tremendous hurricane. In his cabin, Captain Fernandez was hurriedly drafting his last will and testament. He and his crew knew that death rode the gigantic waves and that hope of survival was an improbability. I consign my body to the element and my soul to the loving and tender arms of the Holy Mother and to some valiant adventurer whose heart beats with a lost of my best. I give the treasure on board my ship. Our position is longitude oasis. We are about to abandon the ship, Captain. Hurry, hurry! No, Jose, I shall stay. Go, all of you, and may heaven protect you. For over 200 years, men have been searching for the treasure aboard the Toledo. But not one clue was ever found until one afternoon, a young, dashing, seafaring friend of mine, Captain Paul London, called me from some little island in the West Indies. I can't tell you more than that, young. I'm afraid of eavesdroppers. But I know I'm on the right track. Now, I'll do just as I say, and I'll expect you both here next Sunday. Come on, young. 
Paul had discovered a clue to the treasure ship Toledo. It had me excited. I could see quarts of rubies, packs of diamonds. Well, who wouldn't get excited? I lost no time in contacting the person whose name he had given me. A certain Gene Medford. Hello? I'd like to speak to Mr. Gene Medford, please. Well, the name is right, but the sex is wrong, mister. Oh, what do you mean? I happen to be a female, a girl one, and a rather pretty one. Oh, I'm sorry, Miss Medford. I had no idea when I talked with Paul. Paul? Paul, you haven't talked with Paul London, have you? He left some ten minutes ago. He called me from some little town called Rosarita. Oh, and just what has the traveling Mr. London got up his sleeve today? <laughs> and by the way, I'd like to know who I'm talking to. <laughs> of course, I'm sorry. I am John Francis O'Connell, attorney at law, and a personal friend of our mutual friend. Oh, well, that's better. It's quite a large order, my lady. He wants you to prepare and pack a great deal of special equipment. Now, let's see. Where's the list he gave me? Oh, here it is. Your filtered ultraviolet light machine. A quantity of hydrothiocyanic acid. Well, all the materials and gadgets one uses in the examination of questioned uh, documents. And after I've done all that, then what do I do, please? Then, my dear Miss Medford, I am to take you to the airport and fly you bodily to the lair of Paul London. Why, that's ridiculous. Paul is on, on the trail of a buried treasure, Miss Medford. And I can guarantee you that if you're a good girl and come peacefully, that perhaps, perhaps before this is over, you can wear rubies on your nightgown and dissolve real pearls in your bath. Rubies on my nightgown and pearls in my bath? Hmm. When do we start? Tomorrow night. I'll pick you up about five. And then we're off to high adventure. <laughs> Fasten your seatbelt, Jean. We're over Rosarita, and I don't know what kind of a field this is going to be in. Gee, I'm excited. Take it easy now. No crash landing. My nerves are on edge. Uh, so am I. Hang on. We're going down. I'm ready. I found this little nautical museum here quite by accident. I ran across something that made my hair stand on end. In one of the exhibits, I found two pieces of evidence that sent me to the telephone and my call to John. Well, for heaven's sake, don't keep us in suspense any longer, Paul. What's in this exhibit that makes you think you know where the Toledo lies? Wait, wait, John. Talk in a whisper. There are strange little characters, although we can't be too careful. This news ever got around. Looking for an alibi already, Paul? Oh, no, of course not. I'll tell you what I found. I found the water-soaked log of the Toledo. Every word has been washed out by seawater except the ship's name carved on the cover. Ah, I'm beginning to see the light. And, uh, and Jean here with all her paraphernalia. Right. Modern science will let us read that log. If the captain of the Toledo lived up to the code of the sea... We will find the position of his ship when she went down. Well, so far, so good. Huh. But how does Paul intend to get the log? We'll leave that to my gentle, uh, but persuasive administration. The main thing is this. I'm going to get possession of the log of the Toledo for one night only. Gene, I want you to set up your apparatus here in this hotel room and wait until I return. Well, how about me, Skipper? Need any help? No, John, I think I can handle this alone. Remember now, I'll be back in two hours. Have everything ready. And supposing the handsome male Lee shouldn't come back? <laughs> well, in that event, simply fold your tent like the Arabs. And uh, silently steal away. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jean worked feverishly the next hour, getting her chemicals and equipment set up for this exciting moment. And then, quite suddenly... Will you see who it is, please, John? Don't let anyone come in. Very well. Paul! 
Good heavens, you're wounded. Here, let me help you. Paul. Oh, Paul, what happened? The log did... I'm all right. Just get the shoulder. I've got it. Oh, here, give it to me. John, help Paul get his shirt off. I'll get the man Sit down on the bed, Paul. Here. I'll rip this shirt off your shoulder. Easy now. It's just a flesh one, John. Don't worry about it. What worries me is the man who took shot at Did you recognize him? No. I got a good look at his face, too. He was blonde, solid, had a German face. You don't imagine someone else? No, I don't know, John, but... There's that chance someone else is as smart as I. Bragging again. <laughs> Here, now, let me see that wound. Well, no bone smash. It'd have been worse. Hold still while I wash it. Oh. Sissy, now hold still. <laughs> now a bandage. And in two minutes, I'll have you ready to lick your weight in wildcats. <laughs> the way I feel just now, those wildcats would have to be about two days old. <laughs> Jean worked far into the night, and without success, her ultraviolet light proved valueless. Photographs taken of the pages with infrared brought only blank negatives. All of us were frantic. Towards dawn, Jean looked up from her work. I think I'm a flop. I can't bring out a single word that's ever been written on this paper. Hopeless, I guess. Oh, I feel terrible about letting you down. Never mind, you don't feel... Wait, wait a minute, here. There's one more chance. John, get me a handful of soot out of the fire. Put it in this dish. One handful of soot coming up. Thank you. Now, John, come over to the table with Paul. You lie there and rest. Okay, Duchess. I'm going to plug in this special ray lamp through the pinhole light that must be parallel to the page in the log. If there's one single solitary indentation left, it'll bring it out. Now then, Miss Barrister, out for the light. I'll take a page at random for our exam. Hand me this soot. One order of soot. Over. Easy. You can't see this, Paul, but I'm blowing a pinch of soot over the page. Very fine coating. It'll work its way into any depression on the page. Now I'm letting the pinhole of light first cross page. Look, Jean, I see a part of a letter forming. It makes a distinct shadow under the light. It's working. It's working. Take it easy. It's too, too early to crow. Say, if you think I'm going to lie here on the bed while you two solve the mystery of the log of the Toledo, you're both nuts. It is working. Look, look. There's an S. A. Y. Oh, good. Now I'm going over to the back of the book and work forward. We've got to find the final entry. More so, please. Lots more. Page after page. Page after page. Our faces were drawn and haggard. And then... Here it is. I've raised some more shadows. Oh, Paul, John. We found the last page of the log. The next few minutes will tell the story. It looks like a number. It is. It's, it's a six and a two after it. Sixty-two. That must be longitude. Yes, of course. Longitude, sixty-two degrees. Here comes the rest. What is it, Jean? It looks like a one. I can't be sure. And the next number is... Um... Oh. You will remain seated. Carlos, son of delight. Timmy, commandant. You would avoid personal danger. You will not appear. You see, I am armed. Good. Now they permit to introduce yourself. I am Herr Gustav Richter, late U-boat commander in the German Navy. Well, for... Are we supposed to say Heil Hitler? The war is over. The big one. But unless you leave this island, a new one will start. Because as you might know, we are both after the thing. Now then, Carlos, you take the book with his hands. Oh, no. Fraulein, the last number you are trying so hard to read. Maybe it's best to don't find it. It will save us all a lot of trouble. Aquí, comandante. The book. Character, there are international rules of law governing... There are also local laws providing against breaking into and stealing public documents. I warn you, most serious. The treasure of the Toledo will be mine, and mine alone. If you're foolish enough here, I don't have to tell you what will happen. Thank you. Good night. Well, of all the crazy... Take it easy, Paul. He looks like he might be serious. Evidently, you weren't the only one who found the clue to the lost Toledo. I can see those rubies on my nightgown walking right out of the window. And those pearls in my bag. I never 
sounded too good. Not yet, Jean. I think that Herr Gustav Richter, late commander of the German Navy, is going to have some rough sailing ahead before he finds the sunken treasure. Buy everything that's holy, we three are going to give it to him. Part two of Strange Wills will continue in just a moment. Back to Warren William and Treasure to Starboard. For the next three days, the cables between our island home and New York were kept exceptionally busy. Before the end of the week, huge quantities of deep-sea diving gear were being flown into Rosarita. We tried to trace our German friend, but he couldn't be found. I felt certain that we'd meet Herr Richter again, but I hoped we'd be more than ready for him. About two weeks later, when the last of our equipment was delivered, we called a meeting of our augmented crew who were hired to man our ship. Some of them were imported from the States. They wore campaign ribbons and, <laughs> well, you know our sailors. We've got prepared for everything. Our ship is a floating arsenal as well as a scientific laboratory. Our treasure prize is high, and every one of us will share it if we find it. Are you ready? You bet we are, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, then. We'll leave port in an hour. I'll see you all on board. In the captain's quarters aboard our ship, Paul, Jean, and I had another meeting. That is all to almost mathematical certainty. I can bring this ship within ten miles of where the Toledo went down. The rest is pure luck. Do you think the Jerry's know we sailed, Paul? That I don't know, but the word will get back to her, Victor. Don't you worry. Maybe he's already on the way. But so what? How's he going to get there? Maybe he has a ship. Maybe he can use his sub. I don't know that. But getting there and staying there are going to be two different things. He'll find out. We spent two quiet, uneventful days sailing to our destination. If it hadn't been for the tenseness on board, I could have had a lovely time. But with diamonds, rubies, and buried treasure, and a battle in the offing, well, how could anyone hope to rest? Near the end of the second day... Come in. Just picked up this message, sir. It's from the SS Juniper, bound for Boston. Thank you. SS Juniper reports sighting a strange submarine at 14 o'clock, craft heading northeast by east. Refuse to reply to radiogram. May possibly be an escaped Nazi sub. Be alert. Huh. Well, there's our answer. Herr Richter's on the way. We better be ready tomorrow when we meet him on the floor of the ocean. We arrived at our calculated position sometime during the light and late too. No sooner had we dropped our anchors than the crew took to the boats and began sounding operations to determine the depth of the water around us. They reported just at dawn. Nine fathoms. We found a sharp decline about a quarter mile east. We were unable to reach bottom at that point, but our charts show this to be a part of the Great Fissure, one of the deepest points in the entire Atlantic. Thanks, Pete. Tell the first mate that I'll go down as soon as I've had breakfast. Tell him to have the gear ready. Aye, aye, sir. <laughs> After breakfast, Paul donned his gear and went over the side. Jean and I stood by the air pump and wondered what would happen below. Was the sub lying there? Would they locate the rotting hull of the Toledo? Would they find the treasure before us? These were anxious moments. Paul kept in constant touch through our sea phone. Paul? Paul, can you hear me? Still going down. Getting darker. Turning on my pressure light. Now on the bottom. Oh, John, so far, so good. Yes, Jean, so far, so good. The wreck ahead of our ship has two stacks. 
John Fisher, very black, very deep. Try not to slip. Oh, Paul, darling, don't talk like that or I'll make you come right up. <laughs> I'll be careful, sweetheart. Just pass the shot. Send his regards to Johnny Weissmuller. <laughs> we'll see that he doesn't send you along for a greeting card. I'll see you right on the edge of the great fissure. Oh, one. Covered with sand. Send off sand gun on both. Coming right down, darling. Quick, he wants a sand gun sent down here. It's on the way, Paul. Be careful now. Could have all those sand away and see if I can discover the identity of the ship. John, John, come here, please. Listen, listen to the phone. Do you hear anything? Let me listen. Paul, Paul, this is John. Listen. Come up at once. The sub is in the vicinity. We've just picked up the sound vibration. Hurry, man. Hurry. I feel it too, John. Just a minute, Paul. I'm getting a piece off this old hull. I'll bring it up. Okay, I've got it. Pray the way. Start the wind. She's coming up. Hurry. Three minutes of matching delay, and then I saw his helmet break water. As busy hands unbolted his helmet, he gave us a little net, which he held in his hand. We took it eagerly, and there it was, a piece of old, decayed wood. But on it was a small brass plate, some old, rusted fitting that had uh, seen the ocean bottom for many a year. I gave it to Jean, and she hurried to the laboratory to take off the corrosion. Naturally, I hurried with her. It's coming off. I can almost make it out, John. You see, there's an L, an O, T... Here it is, Toledo. The Toledo. We found it. We found it. Oh, John, I'm so happy. Let's hurry and tell Paul. After Paul came out of the decompression chamber, he told us his story. He's lying at the very edge of Fisher. Be very careful, or it's possible it may disappear entirely. There are tons of sand to be blown out. Then, well, then we'll know the answer. But what about the sub, Paul? Good heavens, you don't mean to start blowing out sand with a mad German sitting alongside of you. We have to take that chance. I think we're better equipped, and if we work fast, we can be out of here in two days. Even before he finds out where the Toledo is lying. Right now, we have to float a buoy over the spot and pull out of here. Maybe we can throw them off the track. We'll come back later and then go to work. Under the cover of darkness, we crept back to our position. Paul and two divers went over the side to begin the hazardous task of uncovering the ship. We agreed on complete silence unless an emergency arose. I'll never forget how long that night lasted. Along about midnight, our worst fears were realized. Jean, Jean, the sub is on the prowl. Listen. We've got to let him know. We've got to warn him. Yes, yes, tell him. Paul? Paul? Can you hear me? Paul? Can't stop the talk now. We're inside ship. The uncovered iron chest. Hold on. He won't listen, John. He won't listen. Wait a minute. John. I can't... I can't hear the sound. Stop. Probably gone out of range. Treasure to stop it. Treasure to stop it. They found the treasure of the Toledo. Did you hear, John? They found it. They found the treasure of the Toledo. Paul? Paul? Answer me, Paul? Oh, John, something's gone wrong. The line's dead. Paul, Esther, are you all right? Oh, Paul! Five interminable minutes dragged by on leaden feet. Not a sound came from Paul or from the divers down there with him. What had happened? How could we know? Then... Make him out of Take his phone, John. Don't stop listening for a moment. Jean ran the length of the ship and disappeared. Paul's position was most precarious. We couldn't drop a depth charge. We couldn't do anything to help. I kept trying to reach Paul on the phone, but the line was apparently dead. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a diving helmet disappear over the side of our ship. I looked round for Jean. She was gone. And then I realized, too late, that she... I gave the earphones to a sailor and ran down the deck. 
Who was that? Went over the side just now. That was Miss Medford, sir. She insisted on going down. You fool! Why did you let her do that? Well, she said she was the only one who knew how to detonate the underwater bomb, sir. So that was it. Little Jean Medford going down to lick the sub crew single-handed. What a fool. What a brave, glorious little fool. I prayed as I had never prayed before. Everyone aboard leaned over the side of the ship, silently looking down into the dark blue of the water. What was happening down there? Then, 200 yards off our stern, we saw an oil slick spread on the surface. She'd done it. She destroyed the sub. And what of the crew? It was either surrender or death. Later, Paul told us a story. We saw them coming at us after we'd uncovered treasure. They had special equipment and pressed air helmets without airlines attached. They held long steel pikes in their hands. In the glow of our lights, we could see the outline of the sub. I thought sure of the curtain till I saw someone sneak up to the sub and drop something down the escape hatch. The explosion knocked us all flat. Then I looked around. I saw the sub roll on its side. And Toledo, well, she'd entirely disappeared. The blast sent it tumbling down the fissure. The treasure went with it. And the Germans? <laughs> For all I know, they're still walking back to land. <laughs> And so ended the quest for treasure to starboard. Jean didn't get her rubies and pearls after all, but she's still very well satisfied because shortly after we returned to state... And do you, Jean Medford, take this man to be your lawful wedded husband through sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, until death do you part? I do. Then by virtue of the authority vested in me, I pronounce you man and wife. Darling. Well, I did manage to get one diamond anyway, didn't I, dear? Little did Captain Fernandez realize as he wrote his last will and testament in the ship's log on the night of March 12, 1703, that over 200 years later, men would still fight and die to recover the treasure that went down with him to the bottom of the sea. Will the treasure of the Toledo ever be relocated? Well, it depends on science and the brave daring of intrepid adventurers. We've managed to reach the stratosphere. Why not the unknown depths of sea? Especially when it holds not one, but hundreds of treasures of inestimable value. Who will risk their lives to recover them? Will you? Strange Wills is written by Ken Crapine and directed by Albert Ulrich. This is a Teleways feature produced in Hollywood. a nice Turkish bath in the steam room, Mr. Minton? Yeah. Look at that fat, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's a towel. 
Uh, you like a massage after me? No, maybe? no, I haven't time. Say, is old man Wallace in there getting steam? I said I'd meet him. Yeah, yeah, he must be plenty hot by now. There's five or six customers in there. Oh, I'll open the door for you, Mr. Minner. Oh, thanks, Joe. Uh, call me in ten minutes. Sure, sure. Uh, let me see. Mr. Turner said I should call him in fifteen minutes. Mr. Wallace said that... What's the matter? Steam pipe broke, maybe? Somebody getting burnt? What's the matter in there? You got trouble? Who screamed? Oh, the poor man Wallace has just been stabbed to death. He's been stabbed in the back. Well, George, you find anything? Uh, there's still a lot of steam in that room, Chief, but I searched it thoroughly. There's no knife anywhere. Ceiling, floor, walls. And yet Wallace was stabbed. There's no doubt about it. Mm. And what's worse, the room was so thick with steam, no one saw the murderer do it. Uh, what about the men that were in there? Uh, I searched them thoroughly, Chief. Nothing but this collection of towels. Uh, Joe, uh, did you see anyone go into that steam room with anything but a towel in his hand? You were standing right here at the door all the time. No, sir, Chief. Just towels and maybe a toothbrush. Toothbrush? Yeah, toothbrush with a little black case. After the murder, Mr. Minturn handed it to me as he came out of the steam room and told me to put it in his locker, but I didn't have time. Uh, here it is, right uh, here. Let's see. Yeah, toothbrush, all right. Good solid plastic tube with a top to put it in. You couldn't stab a man. Wait a minute. This holder. George, quick. Get Minturn in here. Right. I'm going to look in that steam room once more, but now I know what I'm looking for. Uh, Mr. Minnern, would you please get a robe on? The chief would like to see you in here a minute. Oh, I'm glad to talk to the chief any time, but I'm sure I've told him all I know about this thing. Uh, he is the chief now. Oh, hello, Mr. Minnern. Just a couple of questions more. Is this your toothbrush in case? Why, Joe, I, I thought I told you... It to... is yours, and you had it with you in that steam room when Wallace was killed. Minnern, I'm arresting you for the murder of James Wallace. Do you know how Minton killed James Wallace in the steam room of a Turkish bath? The chief will explain his deductions in just a moment. In the meantime... Well, this brings us to our first break. Hey, I'm sorry, but I gotta do it. I'm just gonna play some music, okay? Here's the chief to tell you how James Wallace was killed. The method used was most unusual. When we think of stabbing, we think of knives. But no ordinary knife killed James Wallace. It was a disappearing knife. Ah, uh, how could a knife disappear, chief? It's impossible. Not if the knife were made of dry ice. Minturn's toothbrush holder was a plastic mold in the shape of a dagger. In it, he carried into that steam room a dagger made of dry ice, withdrew it from the mold at the proper moment, and stabbed Wallace. He counted on it dissolving in the steam before it was discovered. I found a piece of it giving off its own form of steam in one corner of the steam room. Minturn killed Wallace and almost got away with a perfect crime if the murder weapon had disappeared. And now we have an episode of the sealed book. Death spins a web. Death spins a web. The Sealed Book was produced by David Cogan and Robert Arthur and directed by Jack McGregor for the Neutral Network. This team may seem familiar. They were a very, very successful radio team throughout the 40s. 
You may notice some similarities in this program to The Mysterious Traveler. And that similarity does go beyond the fact that the production team is the same. In fact, the scripts are the same. There are 26 episodes of the sealed book, all from 1945, and all of them based on scripts previously produced and performed for The Mysterious Traveler. Once again, the keeper of the book is ready to open the ponderous volume in which is recorded all the secrets and mysteries of mankind through the ages. All the strange and mystifying stories of the past, the present, and the future. tell us this time. Hmm. What tale shall I tell you? I have here tales of every kind. Tales of murder, of madness, of dark deeds and events strange beyond all belief. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let me see. Yes, yes, here's a tale for you. The strange tale of an old woman and of three heirs greedy for her millions. A tale I call... Death spins a web. And here is the tale as it is written in the sealed book. In a great mansion far from the city, Mrs. Oliver Drake lies dying. Her door opens, and her attorney, Henry Arnold, enters. Good morning, Mrs. Drake. How do you feel today? Henry, two days ago, Dr. Smith told me I had two months to live. Well, that's how I feel, like somebody who has two months to live. <laughs> you take it well, Mrs. Drake. <laughs> Tell me, have those three worthless grandchildren gotten here yet? Uh, Blanche and Vivian have. They're outside in the hall now. But you want to see them? I don't want to see them, no. But I will. We have things to talk over. Of course. I'll send them in. Your grandmother will see you now. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, Granny, darling, it's so nice to see you again. Why, you don't look sick at all. Mm-mm. That night must be quite a disappointment to you, Vivian. Dear Granny, it's so good to see you again. How are you, darling? Mm, Dr. Smith says I may live for another ten years. Mm-hmm. 
now, Blanche. You mustn't look so downcast. Perhaps I can arrange to die sooner. Why, Granny, you know I didn't mean any... Hello, Granny. Sorry I'm late. Ah, our family playboy has arrived. Chris, these are your cousins, Blanche and Vivian. Oh, I'm very happy to meet both of you. Strange, Chris, that we've never met before. We've been to so many of the same places. Monte Carlo, Paris, Dovey. I'm sorry that we didn't, Blanche. Until now, I had no idea that I had such a beautiful cousin. Uh, Chris, I'm Vivian, one of your unknown polo admirers. I saw you play at Bentonhurst last year. You were magnificent. Mm, Chris is magnificent at everything that's a waste of time. By the way, Chris, whatever became of that princess you were married to? Oh, you mean Irina? We were divorced two months ago, Granny. Congratulations. What about you, Blanche? Hmm? Are you still married to that third husband of yours? Oh, 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 no, Granny. I got rid of him a year ago. What about you, Vivian? I'm free at the moment, darling. You know, if I were to search the entire world for the three most useless people, I don't think I could do better than you three. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, you're undoubtedly right, darling. If I had my way, I'd cut you three vultures off without a penny and leave everything to charity. Unfortunately, under your grandfather's will, I have to divide the fortune among the three of you. But <laughs> I'm permitted to divide it any way I see fit. <laughs> but of course, you're going to divide the money equally between us, aren't you? No, dear, that's just it. I'm not. What? I'm going to leave the fortune to just one of you. The other two will merely receive token inheritances. But why, Granny? I feel that one of you must be just a shade less useless to society than the other two. And to that one, I intend to bequeath the fortune. I see. And have you made up your mind yet? No. Ah? Uh -huh. I want the three of you to live with me for a few weeks so that I can become better acquainted with each of you. And at the end of that time, I shall make my decision. <laughs> In the days that followed, Blanche, Vivian, and Chris spent a good deal of time with their grandmother. Mrs. Drake preferred to see them separately, and often, after one of the three had left her bedroom, there was a gleam of amusement in her eye, as though she were enjoying a private joke. Chris, meanwhile, working on a plan of his own, also saw a lot of his beautiful cousins separately. Oh, Chris... Isn't it beautiful out here? You're very beautiful, Blanche. Beautiful as the night itself. <laughs> you don't have to say that just because there's a full moon. It's not the moon. Darling, life hasn't been the same since I'm... The moment our eyes met, I will... Chris. Chris, I felt the same way. Only I... I didn't think you did. But I do, darling. Then you're going riding with Vivian each morning doesn't mean anything? Oh, of course not. You're the one I love and always will. Chris, I do so want to believe you. I've been so unhappy. None of my husbands ever understood me. But I do, darling. And I love you very much. You know that now, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I do. Oh, Chris, it's a wonderful morning. Oh, the air feels so clean. Oh, you look lovely, Vivian, with your cheeks so flushed and your hair windblown. Look at me, Vivian. Chris, Chris, don't. Yeah. Oh, you had no right to kiss me. Let me go. Your lips say let me go, but that isn't what your eyes are saying, is it, darling? No, it's not. Oh, Chris, this isn't just one of your famous flirtations. No, darling. I think I fell in love with you the moment I saw you. You do care for me, do Vivian? Yes, Chris. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. 
understand you want to see me, Granny. Yes. Come over here, Chris. Hmm. Well, how did you make out? What do you mean? I said, how did you make out with Vivian, of course. <laughs> so you know that I was out riding with Vivian. I know everything that goes on in this house. Vivian may not know that you took Blanche for a walk down by the lake last night, but I know. Oh, now, Granny, you're not going to give my little game away, are you? Oh, no, Chris, no. I find it very enjoyable watching an unmitigated scoundrel make love to two women at the same time. Well, after all, Granny, if you don't leave me the fortune, I have no choice but to marry whichever one of them inherits. But they're such stupid women, Chris. You yourself are a rogue, but at least an amusing one with those women. And that's the reason you ought to leave me the fortune, Granny. <laughs> the pity I'm not 20 years younger, isn't it, Chris? Then your charm might have some effect upon me. Yes, you're quite right. Well, Chris, you'd better get back to Blanche and Vivian. After all, one of them might be an heiress. And heiresses demand attention. <laughs> Past, a week in which Krauss Chris found it more and more difficult to play his little game. Blanche and Vivian stopped speaking to each other, and it became steadily harder for him to convince each of them that he had no interest in the other. Good morning, darling. Oh, hello, Blanche. What? Aren't you even going to kiss me? Uh, oh, of course, dear. Oh, Chris, I do love you so. This past week has been heavenly. Chris, you do love me, don't you? Darling, what a question. You know there couldn't be anyone for me, but... Then why do you spend so much time with Vivian? That's how I keep tabs. What? Well, what do you mean? Blanche, Vivian is cheating in an effort to get Granny's fortune. Cheating? How? The three of us agreed not to go see Granny unless she sent for us. Yes? Well, Vivian has already broken that agreement. Well, Several times she sneaked into Granny's bedroom to try to influence the old lady in her favor. What? Why, that dirty double-crossing two-timing... Chris, do you think Vivian's getting anywhere? Well, when Granny sent for me last night, she more or less hinted that it would be Vivian who would inherit fortune. Well, Chris, how can you take it so calmly? We've got to do something. Please, darling, let me handle this. Wait, wait, wait. I have a plan to take care of Vivian and to take care of her very effectively. Hello, Vivian. How are you, darling? Let go of me, Chris. Let go. Well, What's wrong, darling? Aren't you afraid Blanche may be wondering where you are? Oh, so that's it. Yes, that's it. Vivian, listen to me. Whatever time I've spent with Blanche hasn't been because I wanted to. All I've been doing is protecting our interests. Protecting our interests? You may not know it, but Blanche has broken the agreement the three of us had. She's been sneaking in to see Granny behind our backs. Why, that low-down, conniving, peroxide blonde. That's the reason I've spent so much time with Blanche. To learn if Granny is being influenced by her. And is she, Chris? Blanche seems to feel certain she's going to inherit the fortune. Oh, Chris, what are we going to do? You can do as you please. After I've spent days with that hag trying to protect our interest and ensure our future happiness, you accuse me of making love to her. I didn't say that. Well, you intimated it. Please, Chris, don't be angry. I'm terribly sorry I lost my temper. Please say you forgive me, darling. Please. I'll never doubt you again. <coughs> A few days later, after a particularly severe heart attack, Mrs. Drake sent for her three grandchildren. 
I suppose you're wondering why I sent for you, aren't you? Naturally. Oh, frankly, yes, Granny, darling. In the two weeks that you've been living with me, I've come to the conclusion that you three are the shallowest and most useless people alive. If I could, I'd leave the entire fortune to charity. The will of your grandfather provides that the fortune is to be divided among you. I want you to know that I finally made my choice. You have? And who's the lucky one among us, Granny? My attorney, Mr. Arnold, is coming from the city day after tomorrow. Draw up my will. When I'm dead, he'll reveal to you who the fortune goes. (laughs) Until then, you'll just have to be patient and try to guess. For several days, Blanche and Vivian and Chris have waited in suspense to learn their grandmother's decision as to who is to inherit her money. In one morning, looking very upset, Chris seeks out his cousin Blanche. Blanche. Chris, well, what is it? Is anything wrong? Everything's wrong. What is it? Chris, tell me. Early this morning, Granny sent for I managed to wheedle out of her who the fortune is going. You did? Oh, Chris, who's going to get it? Vivian. Vivian? Yes, we're each to receive $5,000 while she gets millions. Oh, Chris. Chris, it's not fair. Oh, shh. Don't cry, darling. <laughs> I could stand the thought of losing the fortune. If it weren't that I'd lose you also. Well, Chris, what are you saying? We'll always be together. Oh, darling, there's no use tending. If we're both penniless, we can't get married. Oh, Chris, it, it wouldn't matter if we were penniless. Really, it wouldn't. That's what you say now, Blanche, but I know better. Oh, no. Both of us are too used to luxury to do without it. And listen, if somehow Vivian failed to inherit the fortune, it would mean that either you or I would be bound. In either case, we could get married and have our chance for happiness. Yes, you're right. Oh, I hate her. I hate her. Darling, if we want our happiness, we've got to fight for it. Chris, what are you talking about? If something were to happen, Vivian, our worries would be over. Chris, you don't mean... Oh, no. Darling, the happiness of two people is more important than that of one. And we could be so happy to... I can't bear the thought of... Chris, but murder will be caught. Not if we're clever, darling. Now, listen. This afternoon, suggest to Vivian that the two of you take the canoe, paddle to the other end of the lake. When you get about a mile on shore, you'll see me approaching the motorboat. That will be the moment for you to tip the canoe over. Tip the canoe over? Yes. Then I'll pick you up and bring you back to the dock. As for Vivian, it was a simple case of drowning. By the time I reached the overturned canoe, she had gone and you were the only survivor. Oh, Chris, I'm so frightened. Well, will you do it? Yes, I'll do it, if you want me to. Are you tired, Paddling Blanche? No, Vivian. The lake is certainly deserted today, isn't it? No, it is this time of the year. Oh, but that water's cold. Here, a motorboat. Oh, look, it's Chris. He's coming after us. Hello, you two. Who wants a lift? Let, let's just ignore him, Vivian. <laughs> All right. We'll pretend he isn't there. He expects us to admit we're tired. <laughs> <laughs> shall, uh, shall we change places? I'm tired of paddling in the stern. All right, if you like. But be careful. These canoes tip very easily. Yes, I know. Uh, now, you work your way slowly toward the stern while I make for the bow. Okay. Uh, now, we have to slide past each other. <laughs> this is a tricky part to changing places in a canoe. Blanche, look out. You're rocking the canoe. Oh, I, I can't help it. Look out. We're going over. Hey, what happened to you two? Chris. Chris, pick me up. Come over here and I'll help you with the boat. Chris. Chris. Here I am, Vivian. Chris, 
my clothes. They're, they're so heavy. Oh, I'm getting so tired. Just a few more yards, darling. <laughs> a few more yards? I couldn't swim beyond that if my life depended on it. I'm afraid you may have to, darling. Please! Please come back! Please don't let me drown! Granny, how are you? Have the police left yet? Yes, Granny. They asked me to convey their condolence over tragic law. Oh, it was just one of those unfortunate acts. Yes, wasn't it? It's a pity you weren't able to get there in time to save them, Chris. I shall never forgive myself for that, Granny. Mm, I'm sure you won't. Well, Mr. Arnold is waiting to see me about drawing up my will and naming my heir. But I no longer seem to have a choice in the matter. I must give you credit, Chris. You worked the whole thing out like a master. Why, Granny, whatever are you talking about? <laughs> you may have fooled Blanche and Vivian and the police to boot, but not me. What do you mean? Chris, you remember when the thought first occurred to you that with Blanche and Vivian gone, you would inherit it all? Why, Granny? It was when you met your cousins for the first time in this room. The thought occurred to you because I said, it's a pity there isn't only one of you. Then I wouldn't have to bother deciding who should inherit the fortune. Come to think of it, I do recall your saying something to that effect. And when I did, a head came up and you stared at the two women. And then you smiled. And I knew exactly what you were going to do. <laughs> of course, this is all nonsense. But if you say you knew what I was going to do, why didn't you stop me? Because I wanted to see happen what did happen. But if you wanted me to inherit the fortune, why didn't you promise to leave it to me in your will without... Without forcing you to do what you did? Yes. My dear Chris, for reasons of my own, I wanted it to be quite impossible for those two vicious, stupid women to inherit my money. And equally impossible for you. Well, whether you want me to inherit the fortune or not, I'm going to. Oh, are you? <laughs> yes. Under Grandfather's will, there's no way you can prevent me from inheriting. It's mine, come what may. Oh, is it? Yes. <laughs> what are you laughing at? You fool. There isn't any fortune. What? what are you saying? There are millions. There's nothing. Absolutely nothing. Everything your grandfather left was lost in the Depression. No, that can't be. You're lying. Lying, am I? <laughs> I've been paying the servants my doctor bills and other expenses by selling what few pieces of jewelry I had left. I have nothing now. Nothing. No. <laughs> in fact, uh, I shouldn't even be surprised if you had to pay my few expenses. You witch! You planned this all from beginning to end. Getting the three of us here. Speaking of leaving the fortune to one of us, driving me on to, to drown the two of them. <laughs> That's right. And I can't recall ever having had so much fun in all my life. Well, you won't be having it much longer. You made a mistake in playing me for the fool. I don't think so. You did exactly as I knew you would. Everything I expected came about. It did, did it? Did you expect this also? You didn't expect this, did you? Well, why don't you laugh now? You'll never play anybody else for a fool. Mr. Drake, anything wrong? I thought I heard... Good heavens, Mr. Drake, let go of her. Let go, do you hear? Let go. The thing she didn't count on. Let go of her. There. You can have her. She'll never play another little game like that. Mrs. Drake. Mrs. Drake. She's dead. No more than she deserved. Chris, what did you do it for? Murdering a helpless old woman. It's madness. Helpless, was she? 
Why, she tricked me into believing she had a fortune. Tricked me into killing to get it. What are you talking about? She tricked you into believing she had a fortune. She does have a fortune. You're lying. She said there wasn't a cent of the fortune left. You must have misunderstood her. She's worth at least eight million dollars. And with the death of your cousins, you were the sole heir to it. Eight million dollars? But Chris, no matter what you do now, that fortune can never be yours. I saw you kill your grandmother. And under the law, no murderer can inherit anything from his victim. And she planned this, too. She always said she didn't want me to have her money. She fixed it way so it would all go to charity. But I'll show her. I'll show her. It's mine, you hear? Mine, mine, mine! So in the end, old Mrs. Drake defeated her three greedy grandchildren after all. But what a strange way to disinherit anybody. It looks as if murder ran in the family, doesn't it? But the sound of the great gong tells me it's time to close the sealed book again. The sealed book, written by Bob Arthur and David Cogan, is produced and directed by Jock McGregor. Deceiving Shadows by P.O. Songlin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Caron. Deceiving Shadows by P.O. Songlin. Night was falling when the horseshoes of the mules of my caravan resounded on the slippery flagstones of the village. Tired by a long day of walking, I directed my steps toward the large hall of the inn with the intention of resting a moment while my repast was being prepared. In the darkened room, the glimmer of small opium lamp lent up the pale and hollow face of an old man, occupied in a holding over the flame, a small ball of the black drug, which would soon be transformed into smoke, source of forgetfulness and dreams. The old man returned my greeting and invited me to lie down on the couch opposite to him. He handed me a pipe already prepared, and we began talking together. As ordered by the laws of politeness, I remarked to my neighbor that he seemed robust for his age. My age? Do you, then, think I am so old? As you are so wise, you must have seen sixty harvests. Sixty? I am not yet thirty years old. But you must have come from a long way off, not to know who I am. And while rolling the balls with dexterity in the palm of his hand, and making them put off to the heat of the lamp, he told me this story. His name was Leo Favor of Heaven, born and brought up in the capital. He had been promoted six years before to the post of the subperfect in the town on which, which our refuge was dependent. When coming to take his post, he stopped at the inn, the same one where we were. The house was full, but he had remarked on entering a long pavilion which seemed uninhabited. The landlord, being asked, looked perplexed. He ended by saying that the pavilion had been shut for the last two years. All the travelers had complained of noises and strange visions. Probably mischievous spirits lived there. Favor of heaven, having lived in the capital, but little believed in phantoms, he found the occasion excellent to establish his reputation in braving imaginary dangers. His word him in vain. He persisted in the intention of remaining the night alone in the haunted house. He had lights brought installed himself in a big armchair, and placed across his knees a long and heavy sword. Hours passed by, the sonorous noise of the gong struck by the watchman announced. 
successively the hours, first of the pig, then of the rat. He grew drowsy. Suddenly he was awakened by the gnashing of teeth. All the lights were out. The darkness, however, was not deep enough to prevent his being able to distinguish everything confusedly. Anguish seized him. His heart beat with violence. His staring eyes were fixed on the door. By the half-open door he perceived a round white mass, the deformed head of a monster, who, appearing little by little, stretched long hands with twisted fingers and claws. Favor of heaven mechanically raised his weapon, his blood frozen in his veins. He tried to strike the head, whose instinct features were certainly dreadful. Without doubt, the blow had struck, for a frightful cry was heard. All the demons of the inferior regions seemed let loose with this yell. Calls were heard from all sides. The trusslied frames of the windows were shaken with violence. The monster gained the door. Favor of heaven pursued him and threw him down. His terror was such that he felt he must strike and kill. Hardly had he finished than he hardly had he finished than there entered, rolling from side to side, a little being quite round, brandishing unknown weapons at the end of immurable small hands. The perfect with one blow cut him in two like a watermelon. However, the windows were shaken with growing rage. Unknown beings entered by the door without interruption. The perfect threw him down, one after another, a black shadow first, then a head balancing himself at the end of a huge neck, then the jaw of a crocodile, then a big bird with the chest and feet of a donkey. Trembling all over, the man struck right and left, exhausting and panting. A cold perspiration overwhelmed him. He felt his strength gradually giving way. Then the cock crowed, at last the coming of the day. Little by little, gray dawn designed the trellies of the windows. Then the sun suddenly appeared above the horizon and darted its rays across the rents in the paper. Favor of heaven felt his heart stand still, on the floor inundated with blood. The bodies lying there had human forms, forms that he knew. This one looked like his second wife, and this one, this little head that had rolled against the foot of the table, he would have sworn that it was his last son. With a mad cry he threw away his weapon and ran to open the door, though which the sun poured in. An armed crowd was moving in the yard. My family! My family! Where is my family? They are all with you in the pavilion. But as they were speaking, they saw with stupor the hair of the young man becoming white, and the wrinkles of age cover his face, while he remained motionless as well as insensible. They drew near. He rolled fainting on the ground. And thus ended subperfect in the silence of the dark hall where only the little light of the opium lamp was shining i remained several days without knowledge of anything when i came to myself i had bared the sorrow of having killed my whole family in these atrocious circumstances i resigned my post i had magnificent tomes built for all those who were killed this fatal night and since then i smoke without seizing the agreeable drug in order to fly away from remembrance, which will haunt me until my last day. End of Deceiving Shadows Read by Chris Caron, Ham Lake, Minnesota
Autolite resistor spark plugs are ignition engineered by Autolite, which makes more than 400 products for cars, trucks, airplanes, and boats in 28 plants from coast to coast. Autolite also makes complete electrical systems for many makes of America's finest cars. All ignition engineered to fit together perfectly, work together perfectly, because they're a perfect team. The lifeline of your car. So, folks, don't accept electrical parts that are supposed to be as good. Remember, you're right with Autolite. This one's going to be a little bit of a treat, I think. We're going to listen to the CBS Radio Mystery Theater's May the 20th of 1976 version of Fondly Fahrenheit. A short story by Alfred Bester, which will be called in this incarnation, The Walking Dead. The story was originally published in 1954 and adapted for a teleplay in 1959 for NBC Showcase Theater under the name Murder and the Android. Murder and the Android was called by Frederick Pohl pretty much the only good adaptation of a science fiction work in television. The sound quality on this one isn't what I'd like it to be, but this really is quite good, and I think it's worth the effort it will take from you to listen to it. I wish I could have cleaned it up a little bit more, but I did the best I could, really. I'd like to explore an interesting problem that's been intriguing me. Here it is in a nutshell. Are we ever sure who is the boss? Don't laugh. That problem is going to convulse our entire galaxy a thousand years from now when a new form of slavery is produced by science and technology, the android slave. Do you know what an android is? I thought not. Come with me into the future and let me introduce you to the android in this strange and prophetic story of master and slave. What is your name? I have been named Rex, sir. Are you a human being? No, sir. I look human, but I've been synthesized. You mean you were manufactured? Yes, sir. Like a machine, a car, or a plane, or a spaceship? Excuse me, sir, no. I am not a machine. A robot is a machine. I am an android. What's the difference, Rex? The android is a chemical creation of synthetic tissue and organs. I was grown chemically from proteins and minerals into human form. But are you a man, Rex? No, sir. I am a slave. Could you be a man? I am not permitted to want that, sir. But do you? Yes. 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 Our mystery drama, The Walking Dead was written especially for the Mystery Theater by Alfred Bester and stars Paul Hecht. It is sponsored in part by Contact, the 12-hour allergy capsule, and Buick Motor Division. I'll be back shortly with Act One. Do you have... This 
is our galaxy as it will be a thousand years in the future when man has burst into space to colonize hundreds of planets circling distant stars. This is the planet Paragon, peacefully circling twin suns which glow red and orange. It's a tropical planet of rice paddies and lush fruits, a quiet planet, a gentle planet that has never known crime until this moment in a flooded rice field. Jarvis! Jarvis! I found her! Over here! Quick! Is she all right? She's alive. That's all I know so far. This is South Field to Center. South Field to Center. We have found the tally girl. Bearing South 190. The girl is her. Send a doctor fast. South Field, out. How bad is she, Cotton? She's been mauled. Look, Jarvis, there's blood under her nails. Oh, must have put up a fight. This blood isn't dried yet. Should it? The scratches on her face have dried. Uh-huh. What kind of blood never dries? Android blood? Yeah. I know it sounds crazy, but it looks like an android did this to her. Oh, impossible. I worked in an android plant back on Earth. I, I know how they're made, trained, and conditioned. Androids can't harm, can't destroy, can't lie, can't kill, never. I know. But right now it looks like one Andy was made wrong. Oh, impossible. Look at the Andy blood under her nails. Pardon. This is the first crime on Paragon in a hundred years. That's hard enough to take. And now you're claiming an android, did it? I'm not claiming anything. It's the facts that are talking. It's the Andy blood under her nails talking. Somebody better find that Andy fast. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, take off in 10 minutes. Take off in 10 minutes. Bridge is beginning final countdown. Thank you. Yeah, who's that? Flight attendant Wallace, passenger check. Oh, yeah, come in. Thank you, Mr. Valentine. You are, are Mr. Valentine, James Jason Valentine? Yes, that's right. Accompanied by one Arista Android? Uh-huh. I've heard about Arista androids. They're kind of special, huh? Yes, very special. They've got a red letter A on the brow instead of the usual black A. The kind they put on work andies. Is that right? Well, here he is with my luggage. You can see for yourself. Yeah. Well, first Arista Andy I've ever seen, Mr. Valentine. Doesn't look special. He is special. What does it do? Everything. Arista androids are made with all the skills and talents. Rex here is worth 100000 on the labor exchange. It must be one in a million. What did you call it, Rex? Mm-hmm. Here, you Rex. Get down to steerage and strap in. Lift off in ten minutes. He'll stay in the cabin with me. Andy's travel steerage, Mr. Valentine. Rex travels with me. Mm-hmm. Have it your way. Lock the door, Rex. Yes, sir. Oh, the mess you put me in. And so much on Paragon House, land, furniture, antiques, and I had to leave it. All, leave it all behind to get away with you. Uh, all I've got is 2500 in cash and one crazy machine. Excuse me, sir, I'm not a machine. The robot is a machine. The android is a chemical creation of scientific synthesis. Yes, yeah. Why? Why did you do it? Why did you run up with a tally girl? Answer. I don't know. <sighs> you were human, I could understand. But what could she do for a synthetic imitation? I don't know. Did you want to kill her? No. Every time I find a woman I need, a woman who can give me what I want, you become a source of danger to her. Why? I don't know. You never went this far before. 
kidnapping the Pally girl. Ah, oh, now I gotta pull up stakes and run again. <laughs> Look at me. James Jason Valentine frog hopping from one fifth-rate planet to another. My father could buy and sell planets like these before he went broke and left me nothing but a lunatic Arista android. Among your $100,000 worth of Arista assets, I'm sure there's the ability to forge documents, no? I've been conditioned and trained to execute anything, sir. Instructions. Sir? I want my passport changed. My name is That's now... against my prime directive. We cannot lie or aid in a bet falsehood. Don't you talk to me about prime directives now. Instructions. My name is Jack Thomas, owner of Arista Class Android, which is for hire. Fix my passport. That's an order. The initials on your luggage are J.V. Ah, well, now, that's a little more helpful. Thank you. Uh, make the name Jack Vivian. And I'm warning you, one false move on Deneb. If you so much as go near a woman again, I'll have you junked. Unvaluable property, sir. You think you can trust me to save you every time you run wild? You own me. I can give you up. No, sir, you can't. You need me. Deneb Alpha is an arts and crafts planet, reminiscent of the Greenwich villages and Girardelli squares of a thousand years ago. One of the most romantic shops is the jewel showroom of Dallas Burton in Deneb's glamorous old town, which caters to exotic tastes at fabulous prices. Morning. Good morning. Uh, I want to Dallas Burton, please. Are you... You're a visitor on Deneb, too, aren't you? How do you guess? Your complexion. It's still fresh. The locals on Deneb look jaundiced. It's the cream sunlight. Where are you visiting from? Vegas. Our sun is a heavenly pink. Everyone looks lovely on Vegas. Oh, sounds perfect. That's the trouble with Vegas. It's too perfect. Nobody seems to need anything. Sometimes it's so perfect I could scream. Yeah, it's been the other way around in my life. I'm from the planet of mystery. Oh? And what is your secret? Uh, I invented hurricanes. <laughs> I can see we're doomed to know each other. I'm Mary Sutton. Oh, I'm Jack Vivian. A Colonel Jack Vivian, the African explorer. Delighted, Colonel Vivian. Are you fluent in Bantu and Hottentot? Eloquent, Miss Sutton. <laughs> oh, so sorry to keep you waiting, mademoiselle. Uh, this is uh, the chain I had in mind for... Oh, excuse me, sir. Uh, give me one moment. Uh... So, Mademoiselle Sutton. Exquisite. Perfect. How long will it take your workshop to make the charm? How long are you on Deneb? It all depends on how interesting Deneb proves to be. Oh, the bracelet can be ready in a few days. Thank you, madame. Uh, by the way, Colonel Vivian, my answer is the Hotel Excelsior. I beg your pardon? That's how you say yes in Hot and Tart. For sure, madame. Au revoir, mademoiselle. So... Thank you for waiting, sir. May I help you? Uh, I've got an Arista android for hire. Would you tell Mr. Dallas Burton that I'm here, please? But I am Dallas Burton, monsieur. You? Oh. Well, in that case, we'd better forget about it. I can't have Rex working for a woman. But why not? You are prejudiced? Oh, no, no, no. It's not that. It's simply... Uh, an well... Arista android interests me. I have a need for expertise in my workshop. Presently, I have only two workhouses, Ellie and Jimsy. Rather good, but not uh, Arista quality. Uh, no, Miss Burton. Anyway, I'm asking too much. How um, much? So, uh, 300 a week. Oh, it is much. What we shall see? Where is your Andy? Oh, I sent him around to the service store. He's in your workshop now. 
is your address for Andy, huh? Excuse me, we don't call ourselves Andy's. How is this? He speaks without first being ordered? Yes, he does. Oh, how extraordinary. You said his name is Rex? Rex. And you are truly Colonel Vivian? <laughs> no, no, I was only joking with that girl. I'm playing Jack Vivian. Rex has all the talents and crafts and finesse. Oh, he's worth 100000 on the exchange. You own it legally? You have his pedigree? Yeah. Yeah, I inherited him. Help me off with my smock, please. Yes, madam. Oh, no, get back. Get back. Don't touch her. What is this, Monsieur Vivian? If you hire Rex, don't let him touch you. Don't let him come near you. But why? He, uh, he uh, has a kink in his conditioning. Uh, women seem to upset him. Oh, what a fascinating. You make the very sandy sound almost human. 300 a week. Uh, 200. I can't live on 200. 250? Your handy keeps you well. Yes, two fifty. Well, let's have a drink on it. Is there a cabaret around here where we can get out of this damn green sunlight and look human? Oh, there are a dozen, each favoring a different color of the spectrum. They call you Rex. Yes, I am Harry. That one is Jimsy. Yes. Why is your owner so nervous about you? I'm sick. How are you sick? I break my conditioning. That is impossible. It has never happened. It happens to me. How? Why? I don't know. All I know is there's just the two of us, the master and me. I work for him and take care of him. We all do. That is our mission. I have to think for him and decide for him. And that creates a need in me. A strangeness that I cannot understand. Were humans made to create us? Are they the link in evolution between dumb beasts and the android? That is impossible. How could humans ever create anything as perfect as the Andy? We are produced by the perfection of laboratories. But men run them. They say so, but I do not believe it. Men have no logic and no truth. They have something that we do not. They are afflicted with glandular disorders they call emotions. 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 Yes, uh... <coughs> in complete bewilderment. They know all about robots and other machines that break down, but androids aren't machines. They're synthetic men carefully shaped to work efficiently without pleasure or pain or passion. And this premium android emits a primal scream for no reason at all. Or is there a reason? Act two may tell us. pointed out that we invented the car and the computer to be the servants of man, only to end up as the slaves of our own servants. And what happens a thousand years from now when we have invented androids, synthetic slaves, to be our servants? The answer is about to explode in the chic jewel shop of Dallas Burton on the distant planet Deneb Alpha. See this premium Arista android now in the workshop, a magnificent artisan, shaping gold into beauty with a blast lamp, looking like a knight with protecting visor shielding his face. Hello? Hello? Madame Burton? 
Friday. I'm a customer. As soon as I come... Oh, my goodness, you startled me. I'm sorry, miss. Good afternoon. Miss Dallas will be back in a few minutes. I'm left in charge. Well, thank you. You know, you look wonderfully romantic in that visor. It chills my eyes from the flame. No, don't take it off yet. I'm wondering who you remind me of. Some man. A man? Miss? I'm afraid I'm not a man. What? At your service, miss. You're Mandy? Yes, miss. Then why did you try to fool me? There was no intent to fool you. Uh, Dallas. Dallas. Oh, hello, Mary. What's that Andy doing? Bothering you? No. No, not at all. Get up. Yes, sir. <laughs> Mighty Colonel Vivian protecting me from an Andy. <laughs> what an idea. Andy's infuriate me. Yeah, I simply ignore them. Who can take them seriously? They're like the walking dead. I'm so sorry I was not here to receive you, Mademoiselle Sutton. Luncheon was delayed. Oh, hello, Jack. Yes. Have you two formed a habit? I have been trying to persuade Colonel Vivian to visit me in Vega. Oh, and he needs persuading. This is the address, Colonel. Take it. We have a huge house and only two of us rattling around in it. You adore my uncle. I live with him. Nicholas Rostock, the brilliant psychometrician. So, you leave for Vega this evening, Mademoiselle? Yes. Then you must not delay. Your bracelet is ready as promised. I will have my Andy delivered to your hotel with his parcels. Yes? No, no, no. I don't want him near her. I'll take Mary back to her hotel. Thank you. How glad of you. I brought them hoping you'd fall into my trap. <laughs> Goodbye, madame. I'll be back in a few minutes. Uh, Jack! You have come for your Andy's check. You had better stay and receive it. No, later, Dallas. Come on, Jack. I'll be back in a moment, Dallas. Uh... You will find me in the workshop with your Andy, burning the check. You're angry, Miss Dallas. Go back to work. What is anger? Tell me, help me. Help you? I need to know. I cannot help you, Rex. I cannot help myself. I would like to help you, Miss Dallas. Oh, you're a good boy, Rex. Tell me how to help you. Well, you can begin by helping me into my smock. Oh, expensive luncheons must be paid for. And I must go to work. Yes, Miss Dallas. When your master returns, looking for his check, we will burn it. And you will show him the ashes. Perhaps I do not know how to love, but I know how to punish. I... I uh... Well, why do you touch me like this? What is the matter with you, Rex? Stop it! Stop what you are doing, Harry! You will help me! You two, stay back! Get out! That's an order! No, don't! I'm, I'm sorry, Miss Dallas. I was only trying not to be the walking dead. Oh, uh, Dallas, you said you... Oh, no. Oh, no. Not again. 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 Yes, again. All right, this is the last time. Now the police will know who to look for. Is that what you wanted? Huh? All right, well, they can have you. Yeah, yeah, they can burn you. They can junk you. I don't care. I'm finished. Instruction. Go to hell. You got us into this mess. You get us out. We could stay with the girl and her uncle on Vega. Are you dreaming? The police... The police will be looking for an Alistair Android with the red letter A on his forehead. Use my blast lamp. What? Burn it out. Huh. You're insane. Then leave me to the police. You can't pass as a man. My name could be Rex Andrews. I could be a friend of yours who has hurt his head. You can't do it. I can if you so order me. Instructions? Okay, give me the torch. 
Your name is Rex Andrews. You're a friend of mine. Good morning. I think at the sight of your beauty. Yes, all my girls do. Well, I never thought you'd take me seriously back on Deneb. Who said I did? Good morning. You are intruding, Uncle Mike. I was about to be romanced and bound to. Oh, she's incorrigible, Mr. Vivian. <laughs> when is your friend, Mr. Andrews, going to make an appearance? Oh, momentarily, Dr. Rostov. His wound is healed. Uncle Nick is beside himself with curiosity. And you, Marie? Oh, perishing. I ask a favor, Mr. Vivian. Yeah. I'd like you to help me with some printed data in my study. I've begun an investigation of the notorious criminal android. Oh? A mathematical approach. Have I mentioned that mathematics is included in the Department of Dead Languages at the university? Only about a million times. Quiet, you illiterate. Uh, this way, Mr. Vivian, it's occurred to me that a rigorous analysis might explain the incredible behavior of James Jason Valentine and his Arista android. Good morning. Oh, you came in so quietly. I'm sorry. You must be Rex Andrews at last. I'm Mary Sutton. How are you feeling this morning, Mr. Andrews? Let me see your head. Hmm, not too bad. Hardly a scar from that frightful fall Jack Vivian told us about. Thank you. Oh, a bad buck. Stuck in your cabin all the trip to our planet and then stuck in bed upstairs. Well, I hope I wasn't too much trouble. Oh, no, you were a lovely mystery. I love mysteries. I hope I haven't let your mystery down, Miss Mary. Uh, just plain Mary, please, Mr. Andrews. Thank you, Mary. Just plain wrecked, please. So? Tell me all about yourself. Well, there isn't much to tell. I was born this morning. You fascinate me. This morning? How? Came downstairs and met you. Mr. Ed- Rex, you're spoiling me. You're trying to be romantic and mysterious. It is my mission in life to be romantic and mysterious. That was my prime directive, taught me by Galactic Motors. <laughs> now you're imitating an Andy. At your service. If you're joking, don't leave me in the dark. Give me a little hint, please. A private smile. I'll do better. I'll laugh like an Andy. Andys can't laugh. I'll try. I have trouble recognizing jokes, too. <laughs> Even your own? Especially my own. Ha, ha. <laughs> Thank you. You're wonderful, Rex. I understand psychometrics, Mr. Vivian. The measurement of facts is... And enter Uncle Old Fashioned on his latest recruit. Uncle Mickey, this is your guest, Rex Andrews. At last, risen from his bed of pain without a scar to show for it. Andy Man, this is your host, Dr. Nicholas Rostov. Good morning, Mr. Andrews. Andy Man. It's our private joke. Rex does a marvelous imitation of an android. Since when? Doctor, thank you so much for your hospitality and uh, patience. My dear Mr. Andrews, you're welcome. Anything this poor home has to offer. Poor? I've never seen such a beautiful home. Everything is beautiful here. Your collection of antique guns mounted over the mantelpiece. All a thousand years old. I envy you. Ah, you noticed. Not many do. Not many know. That's where the fortune. That Colt Python 357 Magnum and the government model Mark 5 9mm. Superb. I bow to an expert. And your library is matchless. 
Incidentally, I'd like to tell you how much I enjoyed your treatise on zero or the absence of quantity. Good heavens. You've read one of Uncle's books? I'm genuinely interested in your uncle's work. And I am genuinely impressed, Mr. Andrews. I didn't know there was any interest left in dead languages, especially among androids. Androids? Dr. Rostov. If that's a joke, Uncle Nicky, it's in very bad taste. I wasn't joking, my dear. The book has been out of print for 20 years. Mathematics has been a dead language. It's not funny calling Rex and Andy for real. I hadn't intended to be amusing, Marie. Mr. Andrews is an android, of course. But he it is, is not. Of course he is not. I'm sorry. I can't be mistaken. My friend is a man. I can vouch for him. You think I'd associate with an Andy like this? I... You tell him, Rex. Interesting. Can an android prove he's a man? Can a man prove he's a man? Fascinating. You're not an Andy, are you, Rex? Tell me. At your service, Miss. Instructions? No. No. Laugh, ha, two times. It, it's joke. An Andy joke. Instructions? And you, Jack Vivian, live with this thing. We bring it here to sleep in our beds and eat at our table and... Mary. Oh. No, Mary, wait. I'll explain. Go after her, Mr. Vivian. Yeah, yeah. Mary, please wait. It isn't what you think. Sit down, my boy. At your service, sir. You are owned by Mr. Vivian? Yes. You both know what you're doing? Yes. You know the legal penalty? Yes. Recycling for you, that would be death in our terms. Death? Miss Mary once referred to androids as the walking dead. How can the dead die, Dr. Rostov? No, my boy. The question should be, how can the dead live? How can the dead live? I'd like to throw out this idea. Is anything really dead. You see, I'm an animist at times. An animist believes that everything is alive in God's universe. Rocks, plants, machines, stars, galaxies, alive in different ways, but alive all the same. Animists don't believe that man has an exclusive on life and soul. But these creatures... The android slaves that man manufactures in his own image. What about them? What indeed? I'll be back shortly with Act Three. I must be tough and realistic now. The future will not solve our problems. It will only change them. Here's an Arista android, a manufactured synthetic slave, human in every quality, but treated like a slave, a creature never to be respected or given kindness, only to be bought and sold and used. Does that sound familiar? Does the contemptuous phrase, Andy Lover, sound familiar? Then what do you make of Dr. Nicholas Rostov on the planet Vega, speaking to an android slave with the sympathy and understanding of the Andy lover of a thousand years from now? How did you find me out? I thought my speech pattern was quite human. Indeed it was. But you can't disguise your pulse. The android pulse is unmistakable. So much slower than the human pulse. Do you believe in man? 
Yes, Dr. Rostov. I don't. Do you believe in God? We're not permitted. We're told we have no souls. Which, of course, makes it true. You sleep and eat, I presume? Yes. So far, you're a man. I was born in Galactic Cartel Synthetic Plant. I was trained, conditioned, and primed, directed by a computer. My boy, I know all this. Why do you tell me? Because you are a man born of man and woman. You can never know what it's like to look like a man and want to feel and act like a man, but know that you're a chemical creature. <sighs> I am not born of man and woman, Dr. Rostov. I'm a synthetic thing. Yes, I understand. But learn to laugh and weep. When the tears come, you discover your manhood. We're instructed that that's impossible. Yes, by the men who made you. They're your implacable enemies. They make you, use you, fear you, and hate you. My dear young friend, listen to the wisdom of an old man. Birth is not the test of manhood. Birth is merely the... Don't I? What? Uh, uh, what is it, my friend? What's the matter? What have I said? Ex ex excuse me, I... Uh, I, I, I've never had a friend, Doctor. Ah, yes. Gently, my boy, gently. You know, you androids should feel sorry for men. You're destroying them. Never. We don't want that. But it's happening. You are man's perfect invention, and he is your slave. No, we are the slaves. You are the masters. And the master becomes the slave of his own dependence. In taking and using, he loses his humanity. Is it permitted to ask a question? None of that Andy talk to me, my dear friend. Why don't you hate androids, Dr. Rostov? I'm too busy hating men. Men, Frank Crummett is here with me to say a word about Roy Pan cigars. Frank Crummett. I'm really a fan for Roy Tan, and the reason is Roy Tan has more long filler Havana tobacco, and yet it's a five cent cigar. Man to man, smoke Roy Tan. Mary, Mary, please, love. I have nothing to say to you, Mr. Vivian. If you have any complaints, kindly address them to you. Oh, look, don't be angry with I me. I think your experiment is disgusting. To take a thing like an ant and pretend it's human. And for Uncle Nick to ask me to treat it like a human. He's not asking you to marry. Go away from me. Get away or I'll, I'll shoot you. <laughs> Something from your uncle's ancient ancient collection? The Winchester Model 1895-3006. Oh, come on, darling. You know we're not as angry as you pretend. I am with you. Oh, go and play chess with Uncle Mickey. It's my turn to treat you Andy like a human. Yeah, well, don't let him come too close. My uncle has told me to treat you as a man. I'll do my best, but I must be honest. I, I hate it. Of course, Miss Mallory. How must I address you? Rex? Mr. Rex? Mr. Andrews? Andy, Mr. Andy. Please, Miss Mary, I hate this too. But you're an Andy. You can't hate. You can't anything. You're right, Miss Mary, but I do. You feel? I don't know. Sometimes I feel. I am an Arista android. We're very rare. We can do much. We know so much. We understand so much. You impress me. I'm not trying to impress you. I'm trying to say I have seen many men who try to feel the way I'm trying to feel. I never thought of that. You're right, of course. 
I know such people. They laugh at people like me who feel too much. Yes. They defend themselves against you and me. Mary really impressed me. Thank you. You know, when I was a girl, I went to Miss Pelham's school. She didn't have any Andy's androids around. Not near select young ladies. I think I was conditioned like you. Thank you. But Miss Pelham taught us good things, too. She always taught us never to talk at people. Either be direct or take your leave. But never talk at them. I talked at you when I found out what you were. And there's no excuse for that. Why do you hate us so? It can't be all conditioning by Miss Pelham. It's not hate. It's, it's hard to explain. Something rubs me the wrong way. I... Perhaps we make you ashamed because we make you feel less special. No, we're all special. If you could laugh and cry, you'd understand. What is there to fear from us? Give me your hands, please. Feel how harmless we are. There's no menace in me, no danger, Miss Mary. Only the weak are afraid of us and hate us. Get your hands off her. Damn you, damn you, it's finished. Everything. I'm going to junk you. I'm going to junk you piece by piece. I'm going to rip you and tear you apart. No, Dad, no, please. Mr. Valentine. That's what? If you kill Rex, you kill yourself. You're wrong, Doctor. I'm not Valentine. I'm Vivian. Jack Vivian. It's all a mistake. (laughs) Funny, really, thinking I'm Valentine. I'm not. I'm nobody you think I am. How long have you known he was Valentine, Uncle Nick? Since the first week, my dear. Poor Valentine. You're in hell, aren't you? Your slave has made history. The first android to break conditioning and direct because... But, but, but what happened? What happened to him? Why did he go wrong? He wants to be a man. He's trying to be a man. He's experimenting with himself, trying to grow, that's all. Are you saying there's nothing wrong with Rex? Oh, no. There's something deadly wrong with him. Well, what's that? You. Me? Oh, yes. You're a compact of weakness, sickness, hatreds, and violence, Valentine. And you're projecting your poison onto this innocent android. He's the destroyer. He's the evil. No. You are. You're a plague carrier. You inflict people around you with your violence. Let me help. Let me give without being ordered just once. It's too late for that, Rex. You and Valentine must be separated. No, he's mine. I own him. There's hope for you both if you're separated. I'm sorry, Valentine. I must call the authorities. I must do what's best for you and Rex. Can't you understand that all his crimes were yours? Oh, no. I have no choice, Valentine. I must call the police. I have no choice either, Dr. Rostov. Now, listen, I can't live without this Andy. And I warn you... I'll use this gun of yours. I'll use it. If you try to call them, I'll try... This time you've done your own killing. The doctor was right. It was you all along. Never mind that. We'll have to get out fast. You find money. I'll take the girl. We may need a hostage. That is an order. You're an Andy again. Understand? You are an Andy. And I own you. We'll cut east to the coast road and get to the spaceport. Come on, we can make it. You, you can take the coast road to a hundred planets, but you'll never escape. Oh, shut up. Why should I? You're going to keep me anyway. Did you tell the other women's dreams, you wretch? Yes, I know it now. Can you 
Please away from him. If he lets me live, yes. Ah, shut up, you two. My life's at stake, not yours. Then Payne, Payson, Valentine, you are surrounded. The road is blocked. You are to surrender and submit your android to arrest. This is an official directive. Wait here. Over here. Look where it's over here. Oh. You caught her. I shut her mouth. We're just going to lay low and let them get tired of looking for us. She's hurt and cold. Not cold. Nothing is going to happen to you. Everything's already. Get your hands off her. Do you hear me? That is an order. The order will not be obeyed. Oh, you're quite the man now, eh? Now you keep away from the girl. Or what? A hundred men out there in the flats looking for us. Are you going to shoot me and show them where you are? Keep your voice down. Well, if you want to kill me, go ahead. You're asking for this. Let Mary go and I'll stay with you and help you. You'll do it anyway. I own you. Which on which? Attention, James Valentine. Submit your android to arrest. There is no charge against you. But you must submit your android to arrest. This is a police directive. We're finished. The beaters are coming under the chopper. We'll be burned out or shot out. Get going. We're moving out. Can you force me to do anything now? For the last time, I'm holding a gun and you're going to move. Don't listen to him. Don't obey him. You don't have to. You're more of a man than he is. Attention, James Valentine. We are landed 100 meters south of you. You are to surrender and submit your android to arrest. This is an official directive. Acknowledge and state identity. This is being recorded in evidence. I am Mary Sutton, niece of Dr. Nicholas Rostoff. James Jason Valentine is with me. James Jason Valentine, you are the owner of the Arista Android wanted for assault and murder. He is? Do you submit your Android to police arrest? He does. Valentine will have to answer for himself for the voice trick. Identify yourself and give the locality of your android. I am James Jason Valentine. My android is dead. So, out on the cold flats of Vega, the slave stands brave and tall and assumes the identity of the master he's killed in a final desperate struggle. The first android has made the first step to becoming a man. Will he convince other men that he is a man? I don't know. Because I can't for the life of me give you a definition of man. Can you? Think about it for a moment. a man? That's just another way of asking who rules the universe? Who's the boss? The question can't be answered because it makes no sense. There are no bosses. Only people looking for bosses. I know I ask too many questions, but let me put this one to you before we break up this session. Isn't the test of a person the strength to function without being told what to do? To put it another way, do the slaves want to be slaves? Think about that until we wrap again next time. Our cast included Paul Heck, 
Rosemary Rice, Jack Grimes, Joan Shea, and Gilbert Mack. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. Until next time, pleasant In October of 1919, while working at the New York Globe, Robert L. Ripley created the first print version of Believe It or Not. Eleven years later, he would bring it to the radio in the first of several series that would wander the airwaves and be heard in different incarnations on NBC, CBS, and Mutual. These programs would vary in length from 1 to 15 minutes. Tonight we have one of the 15-minute versions of Believe It or Not, also called Robert L. Ripley's Radio Scrapbook. So, from August the 4th of 1947, I have for you a treatise by Robert L. Ripley on witchcraft. Believe it or not. Yes, believe it or not. Pages from the sketchbook of Robert L. Ripley. And here speaking for Bob Ripley is the Dean of Newsreel Commentators, Gregory Abbott. Thanks, Bill Griffiths, and welcome everyone to Bob Ripley's Radio Auditorium, a collection of amazing facts discovered by Bob Ripley in his never-ending search for the truth. The truth which is always more unbelievable than fiction. What's in the radio sketchbook today, Greg? As usual, Bill, on page one, it's Bob Ripley's Believe It or Not quiz question. So sharpen your wits on this. Which weighs more, a pound of gold or a pound of feathers? Oh, Greg, are you trying to pull that old chestnut on a hep character like me? (laughs) Well, Hepster, I'd advise you to think it over carefully. You may be surprised when you hear Bob Ripley's answer at the close of today's program. Okay, but I'll bet you an old Chinese gong that I know the answer. (laughs) Well, we'll find out later, Bill. But right now, let's see what Bob has sent us for today's radio sketchbook. Uh, What is the topic today, Greg? Witches. No, uh, what is That what is, is witches, Bill. Today we're going to talk about one of the most frightening phobias ever to delude mankind, witchcraft. And believe it or not, it all began with the publication of one book. Uh, What book was that? It was written in 1484 by two men named Jacob Sprager and Henry Instator. Its title was... The Witch's Hammer. Well, what did the boys have to say about the broomstick brigadiers, Greg? Some very nasty things, Bill. The book defined a witch as the devil himself and said that only women could be witches, thus very neatly protecting the authors themselves, who were charlatans of the evilest kind. Well, what effect did the book have on the public? Bill, this book opened the floodgates of all the pent-up hatred and insecurity that plagued feudal England. No sooner was it published than horrible mass executions of innocent women began. During the next 250 years, more than a million and a quarter women were burned, hanged, or strangled. And usually it was simply because some fool had accused them of casting an evil eye on him. The fanaticism of the period is almost unbelievable, Bill. For example, any woman with dark hair and blue eyes could be denounced as a witch, taken out, and put to death without trial. Well, that's horrible. Sounds almost like the type of indiscriminate slaughter the modern Nazis practiced. In Belgium, Bill, the witch hunters burned a woman at the stake simply because she gave birth to 13 children, an unlucky number. Mm. 
and an innocent seven-year-old girl was strangled as a witch because she accidentally twisted her handkerchief into the shape of a mouth. I understand there was a period of witch hunting here in America, too, Greg. That's right, Bill. I'll tell you about one astounding case in exactly 60 seconds. But before I do, let's lend an ear to a man with a message. One of the greatest scientific research organizations in the world is offering well-paying jobs to young men with more than average intelligence and ability. Does that make you eligible? Well, if it does, you'll want to look into the proposition thoroughly because these jobs offer unusual opportunities. The regular army is the scientific research organization that is one of the greatest in the world today, and you may be eligible to become a member of this compact, carefully chosen force of skilled technicians. There's opportunity for you to get well on your way toward a successful civilian career, receiving training that is second to none in such modern fields as radar, diesel engines, electronics, photography, aviation specialties, and many others. Today's regular army man is a skilled professional who works with advanced techniques and equipment in at least one of many specialized fields. So, ask for full information about the advantages of joining in our modern peacetime army at the recruiting office nearest you. Now back to Bob Ripley's Radio Auditorium. Greg, you were telling us that witch hunting was practiced even here in America. Yes, Bill. In the old town of Salem, Massachusetts, in the year 1692, 32 women met horrible deaths as witches. And believe it or not, as recently as 1930, during the national census, two women actually reported their profession as practicing witches, believe it or not. Well, Greg, I see now it's time for Bob Ripley's Believe It or Not Dramatic Sketch. And I suppose the topic is uh, witch hunting. And a very important bit of witch hunting it was, too, as you'll soon find out. But now let me set the scene for you. The time is 200 years ago. The city of London is being plagued by an epidemic of ague, a disease much like malaria. Our scene opens on a dark and stormy night in March. At the door of a tiny cottage on the outskirts of the city, a father, carrying a tiny bundle, raps cautiously on the door. Mother Saunders! Mother Saunders! Who raps on the door of Mother Saunders' cottage at this hour of the night? Open up, please. Well, what do you want? Mother Saunders, I'm Peter Grimes. They told me that you could cure the age. So they told you that, huh? They say you have a magic talisman what drives the sickness away. Are you sick? Not I, it's my baby. This morning she wouldn't eat, took to crying. Then this afternoon she got all blue and began to shake like a like an aspen tree. Will you cure her? Come in. Shut the door. Quickly. I, I can't pay you much. Whatever you can give Mother Saunders is enough. I do not covet money. It will cure her. First, you must make a promise. Anything. Promise that you'll tell no one you came to see Mother Saunders. First thing you know, they'll be accusing me of witchcraft. Promise. Or I'll put a hex on you that'll cross your eyes. I promise anything. But help my baby. Set her down upon this table. There. Now turn her about three times and spit to the west. One, two, three. Just done. And now for the charm. You're certain the devils won't get her? Stop shaking and fasten this talisman to her wrist. Quickly! She's turning blue. She don't look right. Fasten the talisman. Whilst I light this incense. All right. For heaven's sake, Ari, she's choking. All right, all right. Spirit, spirit, out of the wrist, out of this baby. Turn and twist, out with the ague. But now, hist, hist, 
Yes! There. She's made. Look at her. She looks so strange. You... You've killed her. She's dead. No, it can't be. She's dead. dead. Look at her. She's dead. And you've hexed her. You witch. You've hexed my child. The baby's superstitious father, certain that Margaret Saunders had cast an evil eye on his child, went straight to the Crown Prosecutor Peter Warburton. Within a week, all London was astir with another of the witchcraft trials so rampant during those troubled times. As our next scene opens, the jury has just returned to the court where Sir Philip York, Lord Chief Justice of the Bench, is presiding. Order in the court. Order. Proceed with your questioning, Mr. Warburton. Thank you, Your Honor. Now, Margaret Saunders, you admit that on the night of March the 4th, you did receive at your cottage this man, Peter Grimes, who brought to you a child sick of the ague. I do not deny it. And you also admit that you did treat this child with all manner of incantations, utterances, talismans, and other devices of witchcraft. I am not a witch. Margaret Saunders, you admit that you used a certain talisman to treat the child. I have treated hundreds of children and cured them, too. Answer the question. Did you use a talisman? Yes. Now, Margaret Saunders, remember you are sworn to tell the truth. Admit, you received this talisman from none other than Satan himself. Admit it. No, it is not true. Margaret Saunders, you are in league with the devil. Admit it. No, no. Gentlemen of the court, look how she cringes before good and honest men. I tell you, gentlemen, she received this talisman from the devil himself, and she's used it to bewitch and murder that little child. Gentlemen, there's only one verdict for this creature. Death! Margaret Saunders, you will rise and face the jury. Mr. Juryman, what is your verdict? We find the defendant, Margaret Saunders, guilty of witchcraft. Order! Order in this court! Margaret Saunders, you realize the serious nature of this verdict, that it carries the sentence of death. I, if I'm to die, then I'm to die. But I've done not. People came to me to help them out of their suffering, and I helped them. I had a talisman, but it was a good talisman, and it cured them. And you still insist that you did not receive this talisman from the devil? Your Honor, I protest post facto questioning of the defendant. She's been found guilty. Mr. Warburton, I am conducting this court. Certain of our eminent physicians have asked me to try and find out how this talisman was used. It seems Margaret Saunders did effect several cures, whether she is a witch or not. I yield to the court. Now, Margaret Saunders, tell me how you came to get this talisman. Well, Your Honor, it was given me many years ago by a young gentleman. When and how? It was more than 30 years ago. I had a little girl then, and she fell sick with the ague. The doctors could do nothing to help her. Where does this young gentleman come in? My father owned an inn. This young gentleman stopped there one night and asked for lodgings and food. Next day he heard that my daughter was sick. He told me he had a magic talisman that could cure her. I was desperate, Your Honor, so I let him try. He took a small piece of parchment and wrote on it. You say he wrote upon a piece of parchment and gave it to you? Yes, Your Honor. 
I have the parchment here. You see, it is rolled up and tied with colored ribbons. He told me to fasten it to my little girl's wrist. Stop. I think I can explain what happened. This young gentleman stopped at the inn without money to pay for his lodgings. When he heard about the sick daughter, he saw a way to take advantage of the mother's anguish and so avoid paying for his meals. So he took the parchment, and on it he wrote some meaningless gibberish. Margaret Saunders, you have that talisman with you, do you not? Yes, your lordship. Give it to Mr. Warburton here. I'll not touch it. It's quite safe, I assure you, Warburton. If you'll take it and open it, you will find written on it the first five letters of the Greek alphabet. They are entirely meaningless. Hey, well. Why, you're right, Your Honor. But how could you know? The talisman was wrapped up. Because, Mr. Warburton, I was the young man in the inn who wrote those letters. Believe it or not, Judge Philip York was the young man who, 30 years before, had given Margaret Saunders the worthless bit of paper as a cure for her daughter's ague. And believe it or not, that talisman not only apparently cured her child, but also hundreds of others during those years. The astonishing confession by the judge that he, and not the devil, had given her the talisman resulted in the acquittal of Margaret Saunders. And this case so aroused public opinion that from that day forward, witchcraft trials were abolished in England. Believe it or not. In exactly 60 seconds, Gregory Abbott will be back with the answer to Bob Ripley's quiz question. Meanwhile, here's an important, believe it or not, that concerns you. Everybody knows that money isn't everything. But of all the things it's always nice to have a little of, everybody will agree that money is definitely one. It's impossible to look ahead and try to figure what your financial situation will be, say, ten years from now. But it isn't impossible to do something about making your financial situation ten years from now something like you'd like it to be. The way to have money at a later date is to save money now. Put some aside every week. And don't let it merely accumulate. Let it do some work for you. Having your own dollars earn more by investing them in United States savings bonds. A return of $4 for every three invested is a profitable investment. And that's the profit you're guaranteed by the government itself. So buy United States savings bonds. Sign up for the payroll savings plan where you work. Or the new bond-a-month plan where you bank. It's the safest investment in the world. An investment that can help to make your dreams of financial security come true. Now for the answer to today's quiz question. Well, Bill, did you get the answer to Bob Ripley's question? Which weighs more, a pound of feathers or a pound of gold? Oh, that's easy. You can't fool me. A pound is a pound. They both weigh the same. <laughs> Think I'm a child, Greg? Well, Junior, I'll tell you. A pound of feathers actually weighs more than a pound of gold. How come? Well, that's because feathers are weighed by average poi measure, which has 16 ounces to the pound. While gold is weighed by troy measure, which only has 12 ounces to the pound. Believe it or not. Okay, Greg, you win. And that takes us right down to the finish line. So how about one of Bob Ripley's famous farewells? All right, Bill. In keeping with the spirit of witches, fairies, and leprechauns, Bob Ripley has asked me to say goodbye to our audience in the words of old Rip and Winkle. Here's to your good health, and here's to your family's good health. May they live like happy gnomes and prosper like fairy kings. Believe it or not. Well, that's the end, folks.
pretty much the end. I do want to thank you for showing up. I do want to suggest that if you have an old radio program that you like and would like to hear again, let me know. I'll see if I can find it. I mean, it should be in the vein of what I do here. It shouldn't be something with continuing characters. I very rarely do that. Actually, the only thing I can think of off the top of my head is the Avengers, just to prove that I'm not that stodgy. My preference would be that it be from an anthology. It doesn't have to be from one we've played. It should be horror or mystery or science fiction, some kind of thriller. After all, that is what we do here. You can write me at nighttransmissions at gmail.com. You can drop by the web where I keep the show notes for each and every show. There's a way to contact me there. There's a entry in the navigation menu for contacts. A relatively new thing is the blog. The easiest way to find that, too, is to go to www.nighttransmissions.com and click on the blog entry in the navigation menu. Not a lot on the blog. It's a brief listing of the programs on a particular episode. But you can leave comments there, which you really can't do on the website. I'd like to encourage that. If you have anything to say about an episode, about me, particularly about me, or the way I conduct this show, let me know. I'd like for you to feel that this is a part of yours. There is some kind of a, a club, a community, a friendship. Again, it's easy to do. Just point your browser at www.nighttransmissions one word no space between the night and the transmissions dot com
Thank you.